Hey everyone, and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name is Patrick Gray. Adam Boileau will be joining me in just a moment to talk through the week's security news. Uh, he's actually in Australia at the moment for a CyberCX event. He works for CyberCX, and uh, it's funny actually because he's in Perth, which means he's technically further away from me now than when he's at home in New Zealand because Australia is big. But yes, he will be along shortly. Uh, Paul Lanzi will join us later. He is this week's sponsor guest, and he's one of the founders of Remediant, which makes a PAM-like solution. Not a PAM solution? Is it a PAM? I don't know. It's PAM-like. Uh, he's here this week to talk about the emerging category of identity threat detection and response. And despite a lot of you thinking and groaning uh, about, oh God, the last thing we need is another acronym that ends in DR as a product category, uh, it actually makes sense for these tools to get built and uh, used. Identity providers are really good at building plumbing and, uh, you know, just the plumbing. And we rely on them for an awful lot these days. But when it comes to doing any real tracking of adversaries as they pivot through your like identity systems, there's a bit of a gap there. So Paul's going to talk about that. Uh, and yeah, I ITDR was all the rage at the recent Identiverse conference, which is a conference for identity tragics like Paul. Uh, that is coming up later, but first up, of course, it is time for a check of the week's security news. And Adam, uh, we're going to start with a report here from Jonathan Grieg over at The Record about a Lockbit ransomware attack uh, against the Italian tax agency that may or may not have actually happened. Yes, the reporting uh, is that there's a bunch of data uh, that Lockbit are claiming that they have from the Italian tax department, but then they've been investigating and put out statements saying that there wasn't an intrusion, nothing's been stolen, no one's in there, so it's kind of hard to know at this point what's happened. Maybe there's some data from a third party that relates to the tax department. You know, it seems unlikely that Lockbit would just, like, straight up make it up. That doesn't seem like a good business strategy. But yeah, we don't really know yet. Um, obviously, with the political turmoil in uh, Italy at the moment, you know, the timing is probably not great. Uh, but I guess there's probably never a good time to have your tax agency just, ransomware. Just like having a baby, there's never an ideal time to be ransomware. <laughs> yeah. uh, I guess is what you're saying. But yeah. uh, I, I, I think the reason I wanted to talk about this one, even though we don't really have any details on it yet, is when the news first broke, everyone was uh, immediately making comparisons to uh, the situation in Costa Rica. And uh, it just looks like so far, it's not that. Yeah, it does seem that that's not the case. Uh, but yeah, it's just really hard to tell. Uh, you know, maybe they're still investigating. Maybe we'll see some more details come to light. Maybe someone will see some of the data out of Lockbit uh, and then we'll have a better idea. But, you know, certainly the brazenness of going up against, you know, national tax authorities or, or national institutions as a whole, uh, you know, I don't know that I'd want to be sitting on the other end of that ransomware console. You know, that just seems like a bad life choice to me. But yeah. then again, maybe they're driving Lamborghinis whilst making those bad life choices. So Ironically, know, right? made in Italy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Now, look, here's, here's a ransomware incident. And I, I tweeted something to this effect earlier where I saw it and thought, thank God that that was just ransomware because um, <laughs> yes, exactly. this is the sort of company that you don't really want. Uh, you don't really want, you know, APT-style crews rolling around inside of it. It's another one from Jonathan Grieg at the record. Entrust apparently had some sort of incident back in June. They're calling it a data breach. Looks like it was ransomware. They say that they're you know, the systems that are responsible for their products weren't affected, which is um, a relief because they make stuff that's very, you know, uh, crypto hardware. They've got a CA as well. They make stuff like access cards, credit cards, uh, e-passports uh, and all that sort of jazz. But um, yeah, it looks like Entrust did have a, a, an issue. 
Yeah, and I, I know there's been a bunch of people concerned about you know what this actually might mean, and you know their statements so far are pretty unequivocal. You know that it didn't yeah. affect the, the products and the you know security related infrastructure like certificates and things. But they are just embedded in so many important places and government agencies. Yeah. And I I I guess I feel like given the amount of attention this is going to get from, you know, government customers and regulators and whatever else, that probably they're telling the truth because yeah. it just, like, it would be the, like, they're going to get caught if they weren't being upfront about it. So that's quite reassuring. But, yeah, you're right. That first impression of, well, you know, at least it's just ransomware. And we've talked in the past on the show about, you know, how ransomware is really useful at burning access and bugs and compromises because, you know, but normally, people... normally it's like, thank God, it's just a crypto miner. You know what I mean? Yeah, but in this case, yes. oh, oh, just just a spot of ransomware. Thank God. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yes, because so, that's that's probably... you know they're 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 a pretty important part of the supply chain, is what I'm driving yeah. at. Yeah, they they absolutely are, and you know I, we've talked to a few people off the edge about what it means, you know, down from the edge uh, about what it means um, for them to have had a security incident, and I mean the reality is that. You know, we've seen certificate authorities compromised before. We've seen vendors of cryptographic equipment compromised before, and we've survived. And probably if it was being used for really bad, you know, used for the kind of things that people are imagining, it would look more like crypto AG. Yes. We don't hear about it for 50 years. Yeah, yeah. Well, although it could also look a little bit like RSA when they got popped and all of their their you know two factor seed stuff got stolen. But you know, I think <laughs> I think true, just a couple true. like Entrust, I think in some of their statements they're referring to things like air gaps and stuff. So I'm I'm guessing they handle their key material pretty uh, uh, pretty carefully, unlike what RSA did with its uh, security <laughs> uh, seed database. But yeah, uh, thank God it's ransomware, not something we expected uh, to be saying uh, very often. Uh, now, Dimitri and I, a couple of weeks ago, when he was filling in for you, we spoke about Microsoft pausing its rollout of uh, the default setting of, of blocking VBA macros in Office products. We speculated that they did this because it was some sort of bug, you know, that they screwed something up. Microsoft has announced that it's resuming rolling out this feature, which to me lends credence to the theory that there was something wrong with it when it initially went out. And of course, you know, there's there's nothing in Microsoft's communications kind of uh, shedding any light on why they paused it. They just say it was based on customer feedback. I suspect, though, that custo customer feedback was saying things like, this thing's broken. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, here, here we are a couple of weeks later and they've resumed it. Yeah, because we saw plenty of speculation that this was, you know, maybe because they didn't really think about quite how many things in this world run on top of VBA macros in Excel or, or yeah, Access but that's not the sort of thing else. you can fix but in a couple of weeks, it, you know. Exactly, and that's what this kind of time frame suggests that it was actually a you know a technical issue rather than you know widespread breaking the banking and insurance industries, which is what you know some of the you know commentary at were saying about this about this rollback. Uh, so yeah, good to see it starting to progress again because yeah i mean if we can finally turn that off in the year 2022 ad then slight improvement yeah and i mean anyone who's really concerned about it should be able to just turn it back on because i don't think it's yes. actually that hard i think i you know speaking to someone recently we were sort of speculating oh like is it a single toggle switch or whatever and i think it really is moving to that sort of world where this is something that's easy to enable or disable organization wide so uh, you know, having a more secure default certainly makes a lot of sense. Uh, now, uh, we're going to talk about some research out of Kaspersky. They've turned up another UEFI-based uh, rootkit, 
which is really interesting. They've linked it to a Chinese-speaking, uh, you know, group of hackers. Gee, I wonder who they're working for. What's interesting <laughs> about this is I remember, I think it was late 2020, NSA releasing some very detailed mitigation advice about how to stop getting UEFI uh, uh, root kits. And now here we are, uh, you know, just shy of two years later with Kaspersky talking about a Chinese APT crew using them. So that it is a funny thing, right? When, when you see NSA putting out advice saying, here's how you mitigate against this thing that's completely not in the news and not, in, you know, not reported as being in the wild. I think that tells you that something's in the wild because indeed this, this rootkit here looks like it's been used since something around 2016. Yeah, yeah, there are artifacts going back that way, and there's some commonality with other, you know, with Chinese groups using parts of the of the tooling as well. Um, but yeah, you, you're very right. But there's been lots of talk, um, you know, sort of splatterings, I guess, of it over the years about UFI rootkits. But it's not a thing that's ever really gotten a lot of, you know, ma- apart from maybe the bad BIOS thing, you know, a whole bunch of mainstream attention, or is a thing that people particularly think about. But you know, when you see government agencies junking machines after they've had a compromise. Right, it's being taken seriously in certain circles where it matters, uh, and the rest of us are kind of left going, "Well, you know, what a what tools do we have to spot this stuff? B, how much research is being done? C, you know, it, this is the realm of of nation state actors, but it isn't, right? We are, we've we've seen some criminal groups start to use this. We've seen the techniques and tools pop up. I mean, you know, and it's an obscure technique, but it's certainly one that is in use where it matters." Yeah, and I guess the point is that it's not something you're usually going to be in a position to observe, right? Which is how something yes. like this can be in the wild for six years before it gets reported on. Yeah, exactly. And our, you know, all of our tools and approaches for verifying the integrity of embedded systems on our computers, you know, all of the little embedded microcontrollers and, and things like the UFEI and the, you know, controllers on video cards and network cards and storage controllers and, you know, even that, um, that thing that was in one of the Snowden docs about, you know, um, using the controller on the hard disk to run code because that's just a general purpose ARM CPU. So, you know, we're very bad at looking into this stuff and clearly it's it's there. Um, you know, I mean, I guess, I guess the saving grace is that usually this stuff is used to drop something that bubbles up to a level where you can detect it, right? So a UEFI yes. bootkit is usually going to try to spin up some malware on the device and it's more used as a persistence measure rather than, you know, the actual functioning bit of the malware being still in UEFI. Yes, exactly. And, and indeed, in the case of this one that Kaspersky wrote up, one of the payloads, so it, it, it you know, starts in the UFI and trojans the Windows boot process so that it can gain control, you know, once Windows is booted, and then calls out to a command and control server to pull in some, some next stage. And the only next stage that I think they reported seeing just added a local user account with local admin, which is going to set off all sorts of monitoring and, and make people come and look. Uh, so, in that respect, you know, all of these cool tools and then a very clumsy net result, but you know, there may well have been other ones. Um, yeah, that were but I guess it's like sneaky. if stuff like that keeps happening on one box and there's no explanation, like you might be yes. looking at a UFI rootkit, right? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, That's mostly I just feel bad for, you know, incident response people who are being asked to judge whether they've thrown an adversary out of an environment. And if UFI or, you know, other embedded system, uh, I mean, long-term persistence is commonplace, then we're in a really bad place because no one, even with supply chains at the moment, even if you wanted to throw out 20,000 machines out of your network and and replace them with new ones, A, they're all going to come from China anyway, uh, and B, like supply chains are ruined. Like it's just a bad place when this stuff is used in a widespread way. And, you know, even going back to the, you know, the 
the boot sector DOS, like pre-UFI, you know, in the BIOS era. I mean, I wrote a boot sector to Linux kernel, you know, kind of thing that would start from boot sector and, and have control once the kernel was running. You know, I wrote one of those in 2003, right? It's not like doing mm. it well across many, many platforms is hard, but the concepts themselves are not, you know, unfamiliar to security people and researchers and attackers and, you know, virus coders from the 80s. Yeah, and look, I, I will say too that there have been some high profile, this hasn't been really reported at all as far as I can tell, uh, but I am aware of at least one extremely high profile and large incident that did result in all of the hardware from that organization being thrown into a bloody wood chipper, right? And you kind of alluded to that before. This is, I, you know, you know the incident that I'm talking about that I'm technically not allowed to know about and i discovered that you know about even though i don't think you're technically allowed to know about it either but you know this is this is <laughs> a thing that is have a drug <laughs> this is a thing that's happened where yes. you know you're going to take 10,000 desktops and you know fire up old chippy and um you know turn it into a pile of grit yeah 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 exactly <laughs> and that wasn't even that recent, right? So this has mm -hmm. been going on a while. Anyway, so there you go. Just to make you feel paranoid, uh, you might have attackers in your UEF UEFIs and uh, there's not much you can do about it. So good news, yeah. everyone. <laughs> good news. It's what everyone listens to the show for. Yeah, exactly. Just to, you know, give you all a bit of pep in your everyday lives. Uh, what do we got here? Yeah, now this, I actually missed this and um, uh, Catalan uh, dug it up and threw it into Slack. Uh, he's back on deck, so expect his podcasts and newsletters to start up uh, overnight tonight. Uh, but uh, the Belgians have apparently... Uh, detected a bunch of Chinese APT activity in a bunch of ministries, and they have written a sternly worded open letter about it. Uh, yes, there's a press release uh, from the Belgian government uh, saying that uh, China should abide by international norms and perhaps not shell all of the Belgian computer systems, uh, and they are going to talk to their European colleagues and, and have meetings about it. So China is bad and should feel bad, seems to be. The, I like how the they result. actually argue in their in their release here in their statement that uh, they would like China to crack down on these groups, which is kind of funny <laughs> because it's, it's you know <laughs> they're supposed employees. to crack down on themselves. Like what the mm -hmm. hell? Yeah, they'll, they'll self crack in there. No, that's not. not, not I don't think that's going to help. Unfortunately, Belgium. But you know, always good to see you know governments putting a line in the sand, even if it's a you know a, a line that perhaps doesn't mean anything. Um, but, you know, strong attribution is good, helps us see what's going on, helps other people judge how serious to detect their own problems. I, I guess it's good. There we go. Uh, Cyber Command has shared a bunch of IOCs on uh, malware targeting uh, Ukraine. I, I think from the from the gist of this report from Martin Matashak, the uh, malware itself was shared with Cyber Command by its partners in Ukraine. So there you go. If you want to go grab some IOCs, you can. Yes, some nice fresh things. They're going to dump them on VirusTotal and GitHub and all the usual sorts of, you know, doxing and ruining people's tools that uh, Cybercom does these days. Yeah, I like it though. I mean, you yeah, know, me and we've spoken me about it so many times and it's just nice to see this becoming a, becoming a real thing. Uh, what do we got here? Ah, uh, yeah, so AJ Vissens over at CyberScoop has a write-up. There's been a few people write this one up. Uh, apparently attackers are known, broke into a bunch of Ukrainian radio stations and did some info ops, you know, uh, doing a broadcast saying that uh, President Zelensky uh, was in critical condition in intensive care and blah, 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 blah. You know, I don't know how effective these sort of PSYOP style things are. I think this, by, by the looks of things, this is more kind of tit for tat, 
just harassment because I think Ukraine were doing something similar to Russian radio stations a while ago or whatever. It's just, you know, it's that that level of the quote unquote cyber war, which is just people basically doing pranks. It, yeah, basically, it's you know, IRC wars of the '90s, except in, yeah. in terms of international relations. Um, like the vibe I got from this, because the like they broke into one major operator of a bunch of different radio stations and then and then put this message in the broadcast, and the message was not particularly well done. Um, and most Ukrainians that we interviewed or talked to about it, you know, seemed to think that it was pretty obvious Russian psyops. Um, and to me, it, the, the vibe felt like, you know, someone in a you know intelligence agency in Russia, you know, wanted to make sure they got a good rating on their performance report this month and, you know, wanted to be seen to be doing something. And this is a great way to, you know, it's not necessarily effective, but it looks great on your you know, list of things I have done this year to get my bonus or whatever. This is this is Sergey trying to hit his KPIs, right? Yeah, that's how it felt to me, <laughs> but, you know, maybe, maybe I'm projecting, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're probably right. I mean, who knows? Yeah. Uh, Suzanne Smelly over at uh, CyberScoop. I, I got to say, too, uh, Suzanne is a relative newcomer to the cyber beat. I think she's been covering cybersecurity stuff for something like – uh, you know, five or six months or whatever, but she's doing a really great job. Like uh, I'm frequently drawn to her coverage as being, yeah, just really high quality. Uh, a couple of stories from her this week that are, are just really good. Anyway, she's got a write up here about um, uh, the US House of Reps uh, is, is going to vote on some legislation that part of this legislation will involve cracking down on spyware companies, you know, your NSOs and Kandaroos of the world. Which is interesting because it looks like now this is this has become an issue of su- sufficient weight that policymakers are actually starting to write laws around it. Now, how successful this legislation can be is still an open question. But one of the things that it proposes is like, you know, if you sell this sort of stuff, uh, you can't do government contracts in the United States. So that's one lever they can pull, which involves procurement. It also authorizes the president to be able to sanction these types of companies and whatnot. Now, of course, you know, many of these companies in the future will not be at all interested in dealing uh, with the United... Like, you can't imagine Candiru or NSO are going for... Well, maybe NSO, but you can't imagine Candiru going for US government contracts, right? So that's a lever that's not going to work on them. But you got to start somewhere. And I think this is good news, really, because it does suggest that, as I say, lawmakers realise this is something they need to do something about. And uh, any start is going to be good. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in this case, you're right, like the existing vendors of the stuff probably don't have a whole heap to do with the US government. But I'm thinking, you know, the the impact it will have on investment into these organisations and their future and growth. And I'm thinking, you know, when NSO Group, you know, sold to, or was it Francisco Partners or, or something like that, where, the, where, where people are considering investing in these orgs, that this kind of thing will perhaps put the wind up them a bit and may help, you know, dry up some of the funding and make the future prospects of some of these orgs a bit more, you know, dubious. And Well, and it also, it also I think one product of this is if you're a major US defence contractor, like L3 Harris that was looking at buying NSO, like this will sort of disincentivize that. Now, I should mention too that, you know, I, I, I speak to people, as everybody knows, I have little chats and whatever. It wasn't just L3 Harris looking at NSO. That was the one that leaked. Um, but I understand quite a few US defense contractors were actually looking um, at NSO. And now they won't touch them with a 10-foot pole after the White House said, this is a really dumb idea. So I think, you know, this legislation in, in some ways is going to prevent 
that type of thing popping up again in the future. It just sort of makes it, it's putting everyone on notice that this is going to be a regulated industry and you're all going to have to be very sensible if you want to, uh, you know, keep nice company, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, most of the abuse of this tooling is outside of the US or the, the, the use of this tooling in ways that are not, you know, what we would like. But yeah, the US is just such a big player globally that this is absolutely going to have an effect, you know, even if there aren't direct levers. Uh, now, speaking of those sort of companies, Andrea Peterson over the at the record uh, is reporting that Kandaroo Chrome days were used against a bunch of journalists. So yeah, I mean... Just more more journos being targeted. Hooray! Makes me feel great. <laughs> yeah, this was um, according to some reporting from a vast. Um, there were a large number of compromises in Lebanon. They compromised some website that was related to or part of news organisations there, and then attacked a bunch of journalists. But also, you know, Turkey, Yemen, in the Palestine. Um, so. Kandaroo selling to all sorts of people in that vicinity of the world. And yeah, anytime you're starting to use zero day on people like it's pretty unsporting you know yeah it's just not fair is it you should fish them like no. a normal person you know come on <laughs> give them a chance you know <laughs> yeah exactly uh, right but no i mean um, seeing this much targeting journalists is just uh, you know distasteful uh the tsa in the united states has finally updated its cybersecurity regulations of oil and gas pipelines now of course they initially released like a couple of rounds of regulation that went down like a ton of bricks because they were you know, by all reports, they were just a buzzword soup where you have to, you know, you have to zero trust everything. And, you know, uh, it was just, you know, quite prescriptive and not really suitable to uh, pipeline, you know, oil and gas pipeline operators and, um, you know, sort of got shouted down. But they finally had another go at it. And uh, it looks like this time they actually did some industry consultation, which is, of course, going to wind up in watered down regulations. But what's the point of having regulation if no one can meet them, you know? So I feel like this is probably this probably means we've wound up in about the right place yeah it seems to have pivoted a little bit from quite prescriptive to more you know outcomes focused right of having effective segregation between your operational tech and the corporate networks making sure that the ot can continue to operate when the corporate networks are down you know things that are are sensible high level goals with then a bunch of guidance um, that will probably be useful for you know, things like deploying patches and deploying updates into those environments has always been a, you know, everyone's very reluctant to touch anything. So this will help provide some momentum for that um, without being quite as, you know, let's zero trust all of our SCADA when, you know, how, how on earth do you do that without actually making it worse? Because I, mm. I feel like bodging a bunch of, you know, modern buzzword security tech into an OT environment probably actually would be a net negative in terms of the level of complexity it would introduce. Um, But, you know, the the core problems of this kind of environment, like understanding what you're running, understanding what needs to be patched, understanding your exposure, like that's still very, very hard and still a lot of work. Um, I mean, I've got a... Uh, I've got a team because I mean, this suggests that you know make sure you're applying updates to all your your you know your gear in your OT environments. But yeah, my hardware hacking team, the last piece of industrial equipment they looked at, which you can buy new off the shelf today, it's a three eight six running DOS, and wow. it's got a web server on it with an IP stack <laughs> from the nineties from some university project. So how are they getting a web server to run on a three eighty six? I'm impressed. Yeah, yeah, that's, well, that's and, some and, pretty efficient code. And in DOS even, right, which yeah. is, is, is pretty wild. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, you know, the industrial world has, you know, you really have to dig pretty deep to understand what's in there. And, you know, ain't no one patching an IP stack from the 90s on DOS. I'll tell you that for free. I'm just picturing uh, the person who maintains that particular thing, and I'm seeing, like, a grumpy cat, but in human form. 
Yes, that that is a hundred percent what I imagine. Also, <laughs> <laughs> you try to tell them to do something modern, and they just say, "Get out of my office! Get yeah, out! Yeah. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about." Um, yeah, exactly. yeah. So look, you know, and and the other thing to keep in mind with a lot of regulations, say you you're going to introduce a regulation that everything has to be done, you know, within X days, or like anything involving metrics, people just optimize optimize towards the metrics instead of the outcomes, yeah. and you know, yes. this is one of the age old problems in regulations. So. You know, anyway, look, at least there's some regulation now and maybe the entire East Coast energy supply won't get shut down in a ransomware attack again because that would be super. Yeah. Be super. Now, it looks like we might actually have some movement in the United States on a data protection law. Uh, it is called the the ADPPA, uh, which is the, where is it? The American Data Privacy and Protection Act. And it looks like at least uh, uh, at first glance, it looks like the principles that they're using are kind of sensible. And it's funnily enough, it's actually what Tom Uren, who who does our sort of more government related coverage in the Seriously Risky Business newsletter uh, and podcast, uh, he, he he's always argued that when it comes to data privacy, like regulating the brokers, yeah, okay, you can do that, but it's way better to minimize collection in the first place. And that's what this law actually looks like it's going to target. Yeah, and that's that is a really uh, you know good approach because there's just so many interesting and novel and and creative ways that you can use data. But if you don't have it in the first place, then you know people are off in a, in a better place there. So, you know, American the history of American data privacy laws, especially at a federal level, is pretty you know checkered. Uh, it is interesting that this one does seem to have some support across both parties and in both houses, which is a good sign. Um, there's also a lot of lessons that they can learn from from how GDPR, like the difference between the intent of GDPR and then how it subsequently got implemented. Um, mm. So you know they have what's a, the advantage a, of being catastrophically late to something is you get to learn <laughs> well, from yes, others' exactly. mistakes, you get right? The, the second mover advantage or whatever. Um, yeah, you know it's still going to have a while to go before we we see it take effect and. One of the key sets of things that they're still arguing about is, you know, how it interacts with state privacy laws. Well, um, I've done a bunch of reading about this, actually. And what's interesting mm-hmm. is that the tech industry lobbyists have been all over those state bills, right? Because their their whole idea was, as genius, really, was to get states to uh, to pass very weak privacy bills but at least the legislators can say, hey, look, we passed a privacy bill, but it was basically written by someone who works at Facebook or whatever. Um, so their idea is to try to get as many of these passed as possible so that the federal laws will have to harmonize with them or will just naturally harmonize with them. So that's been the approach of big tech to try to to try to get, you know, ineffective privacy bills um, through. But it looks like, I don't know, at least it looks like the US legislature is taking this seriously. Yeah, it does seem like they are wise to those tricks to a certain extent. Um, and, you know, we're just going to have to wait and see how it goes. But, I mean, it, much like GDPR has spilled over into all of the rest of the, you know, the Western internet, you know, any change to US privacy laws at a federal level, even, you know, some of the big states, California, for example, you know, is going to have effect all over the world. So, yeah, we're all very interested to see, you know, what you Americans manage to do. And clearly the US does need some you know, more yeah. sensible, more harmonised, more, sen- you know, Well, it needs realistic. something, right? It needs doesn't really have yes. anything at the moment. Yeah, and uh, yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll link through to some coverage in Wired by Gilad Edelman uh, and also Tonya Riley's write-up at CyberScoop. So anyone who wants to do some more uh, reading about that can just hit up this week's show notes at risky.biz. Now, Jonathan Grieg is uh, reporting that Didi, the uh, rideshare company, uh, the Chinese rideshare company, they've been fined 
1.2 billion US dollars for doing exactly what this US law says, uh, proposed US law says you shouldn't, which is just collecting too much. Not only collecting too much data, but just leaving it around any old where, right? Which is apparently what Didi was doing. Um, so yeah, they've copped an absolute mammoth fine. And uh, it, it is interesting that, you know, and this is something Tom and I have been talking about uh, for quite a while, that China has just been light years ahead on privacy regulation and enforcement. And this is just one example of that. Yeah, they, I think I said last week, you know, they, they're certainly more equipped domestically uh, to deal with security and privacy issues than, than we in the, you know, in the democratic West are. Um, and seeing a company get such a spanking, you know, um, was 4.6% of their revenue, the, the law that they're being fined under uh, allows up to a maximum of 5% of their annual revenue. Uh, so they got, you know, at the upper end uh, of that range. And then they also had to post a, you know, uh, a very sort of, you know, hat in did hand, they, did you know, they have to self, They had to self-flagellate, did they? They did, they did. Yeah. And I'm just, I, I couldn't help but compare the language in it. Like, um, uh, <clears throat> we will earnestly fulfill our social responsibilities. And I'm, I'm comparing that to we take privacy and security very seriously, that every single response to a privacy breach uh, in the West gets. So, you know. It's funny because uh, Tom and I spoke a, a while ago about the guy who runs uh, ByteDance, which is the parent company of TikTok, doing a similar self-flagellation after they, they launched some sort of algorithmic news generator. And of course, like some stuff bubbled to the top of that that wasn't exactly in line with proper socialist thought. And um, yeah, he had, to, he had to do the whole uh, self-denouncement. It's, uh, it's pretty hardcore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. And, you know, I don't want to invoke drill again but we do, we, we kind of do have to hand it to the chinese sometimes <laughs> and this is one of the points where they yeah i mean i mean i don't think we got to hand it right. to him for for punishing uh the head of a news aggregator based on some content that was algorithmically <laughs> selected that the communist party didn't like but maybe in the case of the uh insecure data that's uh that's yeah. a, that, that's when we get to invoke drill uh <laughs> what have we got here and you know by contrast t-mobile uh, just paid a three. Well, they've they're going to have to pay a three hundred and fifty million dollars settlement uh, around their twenty twenty one data breach. Um, so that's, I mean, that's also quite a large. I mean, that's a very large punishment as well. Three hundred and fifty million. I think it's the second biggest in U.S. history. Uh, yes, that's uh, second biggest after the Equifax one, I think. Um, and, you know, it's certainly no small change, but on the other hand, Team Bill is very big and they did lose a reasonable amount of data. Um, but, you know, it's nice to see some consequences arising in it, not just being, you know, five or 10 million or a, you know, a class well, action where they pay cents to, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. But at the same time, like I've seen people sort of say, oh, 350 million in the context of their revenue is not much. Man, it's 350 million dollars. You can do a lot with 350 million dollars. You, you, <laughs> you can. You can indeed, yes. <laughs> now, okay. So this one is really funny because I was reading it and I'm like, didn't we already report on this? And then I realized <laughs> that we've reported on an almost identical arrest uh, in the crypto space. So this is a this is a story where uh, someone who worked at Coinbase has been arrested for uh, insider trading. They apparently obtained a benefit of about $1.5 million. Uh, Lorenzo has this story over at uh, Vice Motherboard. Uh, but what they had is they had insight into which like coins or whatever were about to be featured on the front page, which allowed them to sort of front run um, uh, trades, right? And, and make money that way. They could uh, buy tokens or whatever that were about to be featured. And then of course it, they would be featured in the, the value would go up. This is the exact same thing the OpenSea person was charged with. So it's just funny that this is a standard type of scam for people working in these companies. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's practically one of the benefits. You know, you think they just put it on the, you know, in the employment contract. You too can front run crypto trades and, and do insider trading. Um, but yeah, I mean, Coinbase have come out and said that, you know, we, we take this thing very seriously and, you know, we work with the, with law enforcement, blah, blah, blah. And in this case, I guess they did. Uh, but it did seem like this story initially broke when, like, some guy on Twitter that was just looking at the Ethereum blockchain uh, was like, hmm, this account looks a bit sus buying things right before they get listed on Coinbase. So, yeah, it's... I mean, why would you do that in a way that could be observed? Do you know what I mean? Like, new IDs on the blockchain are not exactly hard to get. What are you doing? <laughs> uh, I mean, no one said the crypto bros were smart. Yeah, that's uh, it's that whole OPSTEC is the thing you need two weeks ago. Uh, kind yeah, of chestnut, yeah right? exactly. Before you did the crime. Now, Adam, we don't, you know, we don't always talk about bugs uh, on this show unless they're really funny. And uh, <laughs> this one, man, <laughs> there's a Cisco <laughs> bug here. They got this thing called the Nexus dashboard, which, um, you know, it's on-prem and it gives you insight into what's happening into your data center. It gives you that single pane of glass experience. And it also gives you an API, uh, which has a CPSS 9.8 in it, where you can basically just ask it to execute arbitrary commands. And it does, which I think is deeply hilarious for some reason. I love literally laughed when I read about this. <laughs> Cisco does have a, a long and proud history of delivering some pretty good comedy CBS 9.8 and above rated bugs. Um, but yeah, so this thing does like, uh, as you say, data center management and lets you manage hypervisors and deploy containers and, you know, all the sorts of things that you would imagine in a modern, you know, converged data center, single plane of glass, blah, 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 marketing. But yeah, they, they just straight up have an API that lets you run commands on the boxes as root that just doesn't have auth and it's not on the management plane like it's on the the so I mean, this this appliance has or this, this system has you know a, a management interface and a like data plane where all of the actual compute happens and it's just straight up on that data interface yeah and and no auth and then of course there's also a bunch of other bugs that they announced at the same time including like cross-site request forgery where if you hit and you know put a web page in front of an admin who's logged in then you could run commands which is like that's been in the OWASP top 10 for a while. Yeah, no, I mean, it's just, just awful, awful stuff. I think, though, that the positive news here is all of these bugs were found by Cisco as part of an internal review. So that's where I look at this and I'm like, that's great. You know, like the last thing you want to see is one of these in the wild. And you're going to expect that most of the time that API is not going to be internet accessible unless one of your data center team wants to reach it from home, which we know is going to be a thing and it's pretty obscure. So they wouldn't be thinking there'd be a problem. But, you know, Cisco found it themselves. They're fixing it. That's good. I want to see more of this from Cisco because quite often, as you pointed out, the bugs we see in their stuff are just, you know, so bad. Yes, yes. No, definitely a little bit of a biscuit for Cisco for spotting it, fixing it, writing a you know security advisory about it instead of just burying it. So, you know, we'll give them that, I guess. Um, and yeah, Atlassian having a bad week. They're patching a bunch of bugs. And uh, I think there's also like a hard-coded password in a Confluence app that's pretty popular. And then someone figured out the password and put it on Twitter. And then, you know, Atlassian are putting out advisories saying um, the password's on Twitter. So you probably want to fix this. And the funny thing is that the user is called like disabled system user, and then the password is some variant of disabled user. Just to, and and then the email is like do not delete at disabled user. So they're really you know rubbing your nose in this one, um, giving you out giving people access to your confluence. But yeah, it was like a questions for confluence add in thing from Atlassian that you could run if you wanted to add support for questions. And you know, I think if the download count on their 
like plug-in store, whatever, was about 8,000 people. Uh, so, you know, there's a few confluences on the internet. They are having a bad week. I mean, yeah, the usual set of uh, bugs and the rest of the products. So, yeah, bad time. Um, but, you know, if you run on-prem confluence and you don't put it behind a reverse proxy with lots of strong auth bolt on the front, you're, I mean, at this point, you're kind of asking for it, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's one of the reasons I included these this week is because, you know, Atlassian stuff has enough of a crappy track record that unless you're using an identity-aware proxy to provision access yes. to it or just keeping it internal, yeah, you're going to get owned. You you yeah, will. Yeah, and it's agreed. not Absolutely. as hard as it used to be to provision that type of access because yes. uh, we've got wonderful tools, Adam, like single sign-on solutions from the likes of Okta. Now, last week we spoke about that, that authorized work. Uh, I didn't really have a lot of time before we recorded last week to research that one. So I've actually spent a bit of time over the last week learning a little bit more about how IDPs work. And I think I've got a much better grip on what that research was talking about uh, uh, last week. So so just to recap, basically, uh, a company in Israel figured out that if you compromised an app admin account, you could provision a skim server. And skim is like a user provisioning thing. So you could just like set up a rogue endpoint and Okta would provision users to it, but it would also supply their passwords, which got me thinking, hang on, why do they have passwords in the first place? Shouldn't everything be hashed? And it turns out that, of course, yeah, as a single sign-on product, unless everybody's using SAML and the like, you're going to need the user's password. And you can't just use app-specific passwords everywhere because some of these apps are going to be, the users are going to be provisioned via weird, hacky Active Directory type pools, right? So you need to use the same password as their Okta password, which means quite often your IDPs have no choice but to actually store the user's password encrypted but unhashed, which is how these guys are able to provision a skim server and then suck that that information over. So is it it was an interesting little rabbit hole for me. And I spoke to some people at Okta about it and what they call these, um, these you know, apps that don't support modern standards like SAML. In Okta world, that's called SWA, which I think they, they call secure web authentication or authentication or whatever. And that's the one where Okta just essentially pastes the username and password uh, into the app. And they are the work of the devil, SWA apps. They're the bane of modern environments. And indeed, Okta even has tools that help you to understand if you're using an SWA app and someone's actually written a more sort of SAML style, you know, integration, they actually alert you now and show you how to get them off. But I, I, I think the main point is, I don't think necessarily that users of IDPs are aware that if they're using some of these um, uh, insecure authentication methods that still require use, usernames and passwords to be sent around, that it's not just a problem when it comes to that app. It's an organization-wide problem because all of a sudden you've got every single cred that's going to that app is now up for grabs uh, if someone manages to get some level of infiltration uh, into a you know a, a, a slightly well uh, a permissioned account within your Okta setup. So I guess sorry that's a bit of a rant, but you see where I'm coming from, right? Like because now I've had a, actually had a chance to think about this. Yeah. Yes, and I think you know having talked to people who use Okta, people who attack Okta and other, you know, auth systems like that, you know, a lot of people haven't spent that time that you did to go and understand how it has to work yeah. uh, and set their expectations realistically about what that, you know, what that means in terms of where passwords are, how long they're there, that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, like these are just super complicated and super important products. And, you know, as we 
move away from more you know vulnerable auth from things that you could just fish to you know more complicated systems where Okta's involved or other other vendors you know attackers are going to spend that time uh, and it's just important that we have realistic expectations about what's possible what's not and as you say you know the impact of having you know one or two legacy apps bolted into that environment what that means for then all of the other more secure apps and the rest of it so yeah so it's a really I think it's a train of thought that a lot of people who are using these solutions because they are the right thing to do haven't necessarily then thought through in threat model because like this stuff, as you said, it just takes time, right? You've got to spend a week thinking about this because it's so complicated uh, to get your head around it. And very few people have, you know, have a spare week to just think about auth. Yeah, I just had that little itch that I needed to that I needed to scratch. I mean, I think the good news, and this isn't a dig at Okta at all. This is just a oh my god, of course, you know, IDPs have to have to do this. But I think what's interesting too is that I don't think Okta just keeps those creds for the duration of the session. I think yeah, that once was my you, question. Yeah, last so week, once yeah. you en- once you enroll a user into an SWA app, they hold those creds in perpetuity, right? Which is which is fine, right? Whether or not it's a time of login, you know, if someone's regularly logging in and you're just holding it for the duration of session, it doesn't really make much difference anyway. But I think the good news is I don't think that if you're not using, I think if you're not using an SWA app, your creds don't get stored. So that's something positive, right? Because I was thinking, hang on, you're going to have to have two entirely different chunks of code to do session management based on whether or not someone's using SWA or not. And that didn't make sense to me. But when I realized they stored the creds, that's probably why. Because then it makes the session management side of it easier if the creds for SWA users are just stored in one encrypted blob, blob with a with a you know customer customer specific key. So that kind of makes sense. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I mean, I guess I would like Okta to explicitly explain how that works so that we know. I mean, storing it because they have to deal with multiple regions and failover and, and all those kinds of things like 100% makes sense they can't just you know keep it in session memory on one web server right? they do have to distribute it and obviously there's you know other ways than just storing it in the database to do that but yeah i guess i you know there is a difference between all of the users of, of our legacy apps having their passwords stored in the database that we can pull out with some particular you know per customer key versus just the stuff that's in flight right now uh, and mm. to me, that makes a difference in terms of how you think about the risk. Uh, but yeah, we just, you know, this is the joy of software as a service is we are trusting them to just do the right thing. And we are absolving ourselves of having to think about that complexity, which is great until we have to think about it. Yeah. I mean, I think the only thing that I can come out of the other side of this with in terms of something that Okta should do is not allow app admins to just randomly spin up uh, skim endpoints so they can capture those creds. That should be something where, like, unless they've authed with a YubiKey or they're a super admin, don't allow it. You know, because yeah. uh, that that just seems that just seems a little bit risky to me. But I'm sure they have a good reason for allowing it to happen. I, I sort of feel like Okta and and other and all of the IDPs really, as I say, this isn't specific to them. I feel like the problem they have is it's a little bit like the Microsoft problem where you try to change something to make things better and you know they just operate at such a massive scale that they're going to get people yelling at them. So you know, I think they're doing more of this sort of thing than Microsoft, but it's still they're going to hit these points where they really want to do something, but they just can't quite do it. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, they do have a very granular permission system for admins, so you could put those controls in place if you knew that you needed to. And that's why defaults are important, for God's sake, you know, and this is what I'm getting at. Like maybe by default, uh, provisioning, you know, giving an app admin the the authority to spin up a skim server that's going to be able to capture all all of the the plain text uh, creds that do exist in an environment, you know, for users who have been provisioned to SWA apps, maybe not such a great idea, that's all. Yeah, but I mean, you know, the same is true. You could set up an app that just accepts that auth. Sure, it's a bit more clunky than using the provisioning Yeah, but interface, then the, but user, yeah. the user would actually need to log into them, right? So some, that's yeah, that's the missing to... step. That's why I say Skim's more dangerous than that. Yes, yeah, no, I agree. But yeah, we can still, you know, you can still manage, but it is certainly more straightforward with the provisioning. But yeah, point is, you're right. Defaults do matter. And, you know, just having clear engineering-focused documentation available that does explain you know, where these things matter. And that's just really hard to do when you're yeah, you know, innovating is. all the time and everything's moving quickly and there's so much complexity. And as you say, like they deal with every variety of web app ever made and yeah. they have to build a system that lets you bolt auth into all of them. Like I'm, I'm glad that's not my job. Anyway, I guess, you know, my point is don't use SWA apps if you, you know, <laughs> if you, uh, if you, if you can avoid it. And uh, yeah, interesting. Anyway, I hope I just noticed we had a little bit of time left in our recording and I thought the listeners might uh, uh, like to hear about my little adventures trying to understand IDPs. Uh, but Adam, that's actually it for the week's news. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, great to chat to you and we'll do it all again next week. Oh, we certainly will, Pat, and talk to you then. That was Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Paul Lanzi, a co-founder of Remediant. Remediant's solution, uh, it's one that makes a lot of sense to me. They've built a platform that will audit your old school Windows environment for privilege, help you magically deprovision unnecessary permissions and privilege, and then you can re-enable uh, uh, permissions, you know, system level permissions or whatever for administrators on the fly for set time periods, like time locked sessions. So it's basically PAM that doesn't suck because it's not a password vault and you can check them out at remediant.com. Of course, uh, you know, they're starting to work on more cloudy bits, uh, cloudy things as uh, directories are moving into the cloud. But today, Paul is talking about the latest buzz in the identity space, ITDR, or Identity Threat Detection and Response. So we've got our EDR, we're NDR, we're XDR, and now apparently we've got ITDR. Now, to be honest, though, like I've actually always been a big fan of this concept, even pre-cloud, and I'm kind of glad it's getting a modern acronym. Rapid7's user insight product from a million years ago was actually really effective and awesome because it told you when your user accounts started doing weird stuff. I knew a pen tester here in Australia, and it's like one of two products that he would ever recommend right? He would just tell people, get this, because it, it, it really used to fire good alerts. And that's what ITDR is all about. So recently, I've taken to saying accounts are the new endpoints. And, uh, you know, this industry trend is a recognition of that. So here's Paul recapping what he learned about ITDR at the Identiverse conference. So Identiverse, uh, used to be Ping Identities Conference. Now it's sort of a, just an industry conference, uh, and it's fantastic. It's my favorite, honestly, one of my favorite conferences of the year, but probably because I'm a 
total identity geek when it comes to this stuff. You, you, you are, yes. I, I am. <laughs> I'm happy to be one, honestly. Uh, but identity threat detection and response was everywhere at this conference. And I walked away, I walked out of that conference thinking, oh, is this like the new zero trust where people are just stealing this term and abusing it for their own purposes? Or does it actually mean something? And, and happily, I think it actually does mean something. And uh, it, it's actually pretty interesting. Now, you mentioned in your intro that uh, sort of identity is the new endpoint, and I completely agree with that perspective. And I think as uh, we've all improved the security of our environments, actually the identity solutions themselves, the identity solutions themselves have become an increasingly important part of that. But that also means that they've become an increasingly important target for attackers. Yes. And so, right? So ITDR well, is and it's, actually- And it's not so yeah. much that I think identity is the new endpoint, but accounts- are the new yes. endpoint, right? And I and I, I came up with this this phrase. Uh, you know, here here we go. I'm going to do some thought leadering here. Uh, <laughs> authorization is the new execution. Boom! How do you like them? Apples? Wow. Yeah. I think that's. I mean, that's fantastic, actually, because I think that for a long time the industry is focused on authentication. And yeah. authorization is actually where a lot of the, the hidden risk lies. I mean, that's one of the reasons why, you know, with, with Remedian, the first thing we do is an assessment, right? We try and figure out how much privilege access there is in the environment, how much authorization is there sitting around, almost all of it unused, by the way, mm. uh, because it is, it is the significant unseen risk in these environments. Yeah, so tell me more about the general gist of the conversation, because it occurs to me that one advantage we have when we're looking at SaaS-based identities is that building tooling around that should actually be easier than trying to deal with Microsoft's trash fire, right? That evolved over <laughs> 35 years or whatever. So, you know, right. what was uh, what was the gist of what people are starting to to look at in this in this um, identity threat detection and response space? Yeah. So the gist is that as we've improved the sort of security in our enterprise environments, we've become more reliant on those identity systems, including the cloud ones you just mentioned, which means that they're really increasingly a tempting target for attackers. And we saw this with Lapsus, right? When they went after Okta back in January, they went, you know, they didn't go after the you know code execution system. They didn't go after the source code. They went after the identities, right? They went yeah, after- Yeah, but they didn't get anything. I mean, I think that, I don't know that that's such a great example. Like they got a screenshot yeah. and that was about it. <laughs> but it was certainly a target, right? And I think, yeah. it, I think it's indeed Indicative of where the target's going to be in the future, which is looking at identity systems as an attack target. Ironically, identity systems are also part of the defense. And so they're a little bit, I think there's not too many systems that are like that, where they're both part of the attack surface and also part of the defense. I think log systems are probably made, maybe another example like that. Well, MDM not, solutions, not, VPN gateways. I don't know. I mean, I think right. that particularly recently, like we have seen better targeting, you know, attackers t targeting that sort of stuff a bit more. You're right. And I think that you know we've seen EDR, we've seen XDR, we've seen an NDR, right? All ways of protecting those various components. But now we've got the ITDR to be able to protect the identity systems themselves. Mm. So ITDR is a little bit about how do you protect these identity systems into which we've invested lots and lots of interest and lots and lots of security uh, controls. So we have a new uh, something something DR, uh, in this case, identity uh, detection and uh, and response. So what does that look like? Is that monitoring for suspicious, uh, uh, you know, behaviors and activities on cloud and, and, and SaaS accounts? Is that the gist? Yeah, the cloud environment on-prem, I think this really is applicable. These sort of thinking about how do you better protect identities is applicable to all of those uh, all the situations. There's a couple of things that come together. The first one is really discovery and inspection. You have to be able to figure out <laughs> where these identities are. You have to do the same sort of asset 
controls, you mentioned, you know, uh, accounts are the new endpoints, right? Well, just like you have to go and inventory your endpoints, you need to go inventory your accounts as well. This gets relatively, like you said, it's relatively easy to do if you're, you know, using some sort of modern IDP. It's a lot more difficult to do if you still have standalone systems with their own accounts and sort of, you know, sort of backwards thinking and different ways of, of doing account management and authentication. So discovery inspection is definitely the first uh, capability you have to look for in an ITDR solution. The next one is some sort of analysis capability. So you mentioned be able to spot sort of anomalous behaviors for accounts. That's definitely factors into this, right? So being able to analyze how are these identity solutions operating? Are attackers inside of these identity solutions doing terrible, terrible things? Uh, being able to analyze and pick those up. I mean, it's funny because what you're saying is, you know, it's really like we're just taking the same approaches that we've used on-prem and then shifting them into the into the cloud. I mean, which makes total sense. But it's kind of surprising the the lack of tooling available to do that is, and there is tooling to do it. Don't get me wrong, but there's not as much, right? Uh, right. And it's it's almost kind of surprising because you would think building that tooling for cloud-based systems or SaaS systems would be easier in a lot of ways if you're using a directory or an IDP. Yeah, and I think that's probably part of the challenge, right? So a lot of enterprises, I think you've got sort of hybrid solutions in place where you've got you know, part of the identity on-prem for some old on-prem applications, you've got part of the identity in the cloud, and nary the two shall meet. So there, I think there's, there's some complexity hiding in some of these larger enterprises when it comes to uh, some you know, sort of the simple, right? Oh, we'll just have a simple cloud directory, right? Yeah. So um, it's going to come down. It's going to come down to auditing, uh, you know, reviewing permissions or authorizations. Uh, and then I guess what you're describing as well when it comes to actions, it's almost like UEBA, but for SaaS. That's right. But also being able to think about how you protect the identity systems themselves, right? So how do you actually protect your IDP? In addition, these are some of the mechanisms by which you can do that. And so ITDR solutions, uh, the best ones are the ones that are doing that. What do you mean it's by protect your IDP? So think about, yeah, so, right. So how do you protect your IDP from it itself being attacked, right? So we, we mentioned the Okta, not very much of a breach, but you can imagine a different <laughs> scenario where that, that was successful, right? Are you, are you talking about like, how do you insulate yourself from a, from your IDP, IDP getting popped, right? Yeah. How do you isolate it? But also how do you detect if it is popped? And then how do you remediate if it does get popped, right? So what's re what, are, what kind of reactions do you get as part of this platform to be able to go fix it uh, if you have detected some sort of compromise and are able to uh, remove the attacker from the from the IDP? I mean, even uh, though the lapsus thing was a fizzer, it was an interesting thought exercise because what would happen if Okta did get popped? And I think the, the easiest way to remediate that is to jump out the nearest window, basically, right? Because <laughs> yeah, right. there, there is no playbook for that currently. No, no. Kill all the tokens. Tokens, but still, you're right. You still, you still have a lot of uh, a lot of remaining risk in that situation. Gardner actually says that by by next year, 75% of security failures will happen as a consequence of identities, access, and privileges being managed inadequately. Which 75% huge number. Actually, uh, Verizon actually pegged it at 76%. So <laughs> there you go. They are as one, uh, as it turns out. Now, you, you know, your company has made you know a bunch of tools that do things like. Um, you know, you do just-in-time access, mostly, you know, traditionally for on-prem stuff, right? So you can deprovision privilege across an enterprise and then re-enable it just in time to certain administrators and whatever. Uh, people who aren't familiar with Remedian, you know, it's just, it's good stuff. It's clever. It's easy to deploy and gets you 
quite far quite quickly. So I would recommend, you know, if you're if you're having problems with privilege, particularly in Windows systems in your environment, um, and you want to rein that in, uh, check out Remedian. But you're now kind of offering some SaaS stuff that you've put out there. People can trial it, free trial. Um, what have you actually done? Are, are you just extending what audit or are you doing just-in-time access for SaaS systems? Or what is it that you're actually putting together? What's the approach? Yeah, so we're uh, very proud to announce we've uh, now GA'd our SaaS offering. So you now can get Remediant delivered uh, instead of just as a virtual appliance, which we'll continue to support. Uh, you can also have it delivered as a SaaS uh, solution. So uh, it's uh, remediant.com slash riskybiz if you want to check this one out uh, or just come to our website or check out my uh, Twitter feed for a link. But basically being able to get all the things that we can do with our current version, but instead delivered via SaaS. And so it means you can protect your Mac windows and Linux workloads wherever they live, whether they're hybrid cloud, pure cloud, on-prem, whatever, laptops, desktops, virtual machines, whatever it is. Uh, we can help you manage the privilege access across those things on a just-in-time basis. So yeah, we have a, f a free trial. Uh, try it before you buy. Uh, it's pretty cool. Uh, we're able to do one of those risk assessments we talked about, be able to sort of understand what the scope of privilege is in your environment, uh, and then make some smart decisions from there. And what about uh, SaaS directories? Are you supporting them, like uh, you know, Azure AD and uh, you know whatever the one Okta is, Okta uses is? <laughs> yeah. So Azure AD support coming very soon. So that's actually been our number one most requested feature this year is support for Azure AD. Yeah. Uh, engineering team hard at work on that one. Uh, today we can support Active Directory on-prem or hybrid scenarios. Uh, pure Azure AD support is what we'll be able to be adding. Uh, looking forward to that pretty soon. And and once you've got your Azure AD support. I'd imagine that you know you can then start doing some stuff around looking at privilege in the the sort of in the way that cloud people mean it, right? When it comes to you know it comes to like app authorizations and things like that. Like, is this is this a direction you're going to push Remediant eventually? Yeah, you know, and I'm I'm always hesitant to announce new things before we announce new things, but uh, there's a very logical extension of the approach that we take around continuous detection of privilege and the enforcement of just-in-time access. That that approach makes a ton of sense, regardless of what kind of privileges you're talking about, whether they're you know operating yeah. system level privileges like today or like you mentioned, cloud application privileges in the future. But this is exactly what I was getting at before about how we don't necessarily have the tooling, right? So you've got the on-prem tooling. You're offering it as a SaaS option, but it's still tooling for on-prem, right? And then you'll extend that to Azure AD when Azure AD is the one managing the directory for your on-prem. So obviously the next step is to then is to then extend that into the into the OAuth stuff. But I guess I'm not saying you're slow, right? Because you're not. This is the direction things are moving. But you sort of see that this underscores my point that we don't quite have the tooling yet that we should have when it comes to managing, you know, which users can authorize what in a in a sort of SaaS or a cloud environment, even even in their O three six five environment. Absolutely, and you're right on. And I think that the, those environments are becoming more complicated every day. And so, trying to think about how do you manage the privileges in an increasingly complex environment is a really hard problem to solve. And yeah, I think the market's still catching up to that, frankly. You know, I look forward to seeing what you come up with on the cloud side. Uh, pleasure to chat to you, my friend. It's always great to have you on the show, and we'll talk to you again soon. Great, and thanks so much, Pat. Great to talk with you as always. I hope to see lots of listeners at our Black Hat booth uh, coming up here in a couple of weeks. And then also a reminder, we're a sponsor of the Diana Initiative. That's a women-focused cybersecurity conference. Happens at the same time at Black Hat. Excellent thing to come attend and check out. That was Paul, the voice, Lanzi of Remediant there. Big thanks to him for that. And big thanks to Remediant for being a long-term sponsor of the Risky Business Podcast. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back next week with more security news and analysis. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.